Good morning, church. <laughs> Have you ever found yourself standing in the presence of greatness and you completely missed it? All the signs were there. You know the stories. You know the history. You should have seen it, except you didn't. It was inexcusable that you didn't see it, except that you didn't. But you should have seen it. I can think of a story in my own life. I was probably 10 or 11. I was with my dad at his alma mater. We were, he was showing me around the college that he had went to. And as we're walking down the sidewalk, we see a man um, he's walking down the sidewalk carrying a football and a playbook in his hands as he's walking down. My dad practically bumped into the man, was very apologetic, and looked back. I kept walking. Now, at this particular point in my life, I was quite the football fan, knew, knew all the players, past and present. Um, I couldn't understand why my dad was so flabbergasted at bumping into this man. He said, Jim, didn't you know who this was? I said, no, I have no idea. He said, Jim, that was Joe Namath I just bumped into. I should have known it. I'd seen his football card many times. I'd seen interviews. I'd seen, I'd seen old game tapes of him playing. I should have known it. The signs were there. The man had a football in his hand, for crying out loud, and I missed it. Aviation instructor and author uh, and historian Paul Burge tells of one such incident that he experienced as well. He recounts it on one occasion, shortly after he had moved to Io, he was flying his plane, and he ran into a strong headwind and needed to land to let the wind pass. He located a suitable farm landing strip and began to make his descent. Once he'd landed, taxied in, he was immediately met by a rather gregarious man who introduced himself as Don Pellegrino, come on in, we'll have lunch. Burge recounts that as he entered the mudroom, his wife called out that the grilled cheese was ready, and he began to tell Burge about the, quote, the fair child that I've been working on, reassuring him that we'll take a look at it later. As they were eating, Pellegrino begins to show him pictures of the plane he'd been working on as his wife continues to slip him more grilled cheese sandwiches. Burge happened to very nonchalantly ask his wife if she flew, and all she answered was a very unsuspicious yes, before, she, before he was whisked away to the hangar to look at the long-awaited Fairchild. He was there for hours listening to Don Pellegrino talk about the old planes he was working on. Days later, as he was back at his office talking with a fellow aviator, telling him about this very strange encounter with the Pellegrinos, his coworker looks at him and said, do you know who Anne is? He admitted that he didn't other than the wife. In that, but in that moment, his coworker proceeded to tell him that Anne Deering Holtgren Pellegrino was one of the female pioneers of aviation, most notable for completing the ill-fated flight of Amelia Earhart. She was the leading aviation historian, flight instructor, and the first woman to serve as commissioner of the Iowa Aeronautics Commission, as well as a recipient of the Wright Brothers Master Aviator Award for a lifetime achievement in the field of aviation. All the evidence was there. As a flight historian and aviator and instructor himself, he should have seen it, except that 
He didn't. As we've seen throughout the Gospel of Mark, a recurring theme is the disciples' slowness to true faith in Jesus. They hear his teaching, they marvel at his authority, they see his miracles, and they marvel at his power. They stand in his presence as he calms the sea, and they ask, who then is this? It's true that they were faithful followers of Jesus, and they had a front row seat to everything that Jesus did. But despite their close proximity to him, they still failed to truly understand who Jesus really is. In many ways, today's text is an answer to the question that the disciples asked back in Mark 4.31, when they last found themselves on a boat in the middle of a raging sea. As Jesus calmed the storm, they asked, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? In the, interludes, in the interlude since then and today's passage, the disciples have seen Jesus heal a man with a demon, heal a woman who'd been bleeding for 12 years, raise Jairus' daughter from the dead, and feed upwards of fifteen to 20,000 people miraculously. Yet, these events should have unequivocally answered their question, who then is this? but we're given the impression that the disciples don't quite understand what is happening in front of their eyes. Sadly, today is true in today's text. In today's text, the disciples are once again on the Sea of Galilee. Jesus had just fed upwards of what was likely fifteen to 20,000 people, and the text tells us that Jesus made his disciples get into a boat and go ahead of him to Bethsaida. The word here is maybe better understood as he compelled them or he forced them. Mark doesn't tell us why such a compulsion was necessary. John's account of the same event tells us that the crowd was about to make Jesus king by force and possibly the disciples were getting caught up in the frenzy. But this is beyond Mark's view. As the disciples leave, Jesus withdraws to the mountain to pray. The text takes great pains to make it clear that Jesus and his disciples were quite separate from one another. It's tempting to view this text as simply another one of Jesus' miracles, and it certainly is a miraculous event. Jesus walks on water and once again calms a storm. But to stop there is to miss what's the core of the text. What we have is a theophany a visible manifestation of God within a rescue story. It's against that backdrop that the text begins to answer the question asked back in Mark 4. Who then is this? Let's turn now to our text. We're Mark 6, 45 through 52. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, 
for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. As we enter the meat of today's text, while Jesus and his disciples are definitively separated, Jesus sees his disciples and their struggle against the wind. The Sea of Galilee is a relatively small body of water that sits about 6,000 feet below sea level. And it is surrounded by mountains and cliffs that climb up as high as 2,500 feet. This is a daytime view over the Sea of Galilee. As you can see from anywhere along the coast, you can see the other side from a, view, from a vantage point. Anywhere on the shores, you're able to see the opposite shore. It's certainly possible that Jesus seeing his disciples struggle is merely an artifact of geography. But Mark doesn't say. However, he does state that it was during the fourth watch of the night, in verse 48, which is between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. by the Roman reckoning, in an area whose sunrise is not before 5.30 in the morning at any time of the year, it almost was certainly quite dark still. How Jesus saw the plight of his disciples is not nearly as important as the fact that he saw their plight against the wind. In the midst of the raging wind and storm, Jesus saw his disciples. You might ask why the disciples were even struggling to begin with. At least four of them were seasoned fishermen on the Sea of Galilee and would have been quite familiar with the sea and its peculiarities. Certainly, this could not have been the first time that they had been caught in a storm. And I'd suspect you'd be right. The storms on the Sea of Galilee tend to be sudden and violent. A sea that looks like this very quickly turns into that. The winds that move across that area run into the mountains and have to go over to proceed. As the wind goes over the mountains, it pushes the air down into the warmer air that sits on the water, causing what meteorologists call an atmospheric disturbance. The result of this is a massive release of energy in the form of high winds and rains on a relatively shallow body of water. So the waves become dangerously high, all of which occur with very little warning. But you might be recalling that some of these men were seasoned fishermen, and you'd be right. They probably would have known better than to be out on the sea at night for these exact reasons. But they weren't out there of their own ignorance. They were there because Jesus compelled them to get in the boat. They were there because Jesus knew, and Jesus knew not only of their travels, but of the troubles they would face. 
and they did not escape his watchful eye. Who then is this? He is the one who sees the plight of his people even before they themselves understand it. He is omniscient. But if Jesus knew the storm that the disciples would face, why then would he send him into a storm that could very well kill them? Herein is the answer to the second question, who then is this? Jesus is the one who reveals himself to us. He does not hide himself or make himself unknowable or unknown, but he reveals who he is, and he does this in an undeniable way. As we said earlier, here he does it by way of a theophany. It is a, a theophany is a manifestation of deity in sensible form. We see this happen several times throughout the Old Testament. With the burning bush back in Exodus 3, God makes himself visible in a visible form to Moses. When God appears to Samuel at Shiloh, when God appears in a pillar of cloud and fire leading his people through the wilderness, among many others. Here we have a theophany of a slightly different sort. Here we have Jesus, already sensible in human form, revealing his divinity to the disciples. And it really is the core of the text. He does this in three undeniable ways. First, we're told in verse 48 that he meant to pass by them, meaning it was his intention to pass by. This wasn't something that he was going to do by mere coincidence or happenstance. He intended to pass by them. It was not an accident. We may be tempted to interpret the phrase pass by as Jesus going to walk by them, and that would be a normal usage of this phrase, except that this is the only place in the New Testament where this verb to pass by is applied to Jesus. In fact, to find other places in Scripture where this verb is applied with a person of the Godhead as actor, we have to look at the Old Testament, the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament to be exact. And it is always used in the context of God revealing his deity as a comfort to his people. In Exodus 33, following when Moses had just come down from Mount Sinai to find the people of God worshiping a golden calf and distressed, Moses has been pleading with God for the people. In this, at this moment, he asks God to see his glory. But God replies to him that, he will, that God will make all my goodness pass before you. It's the same phrase, the same word. And proclaim my name, the Lord. So God hides him in the cleft of the rock. And as we're told in Exodus 34, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed his name. 
And this isn't just a one-off happening in the Old Testament. In 1 Kings 19, after Elijah has called down fire from heaven and consumed the prophets of Baal, and he was fleeing in fear. Hiding in the mountains, the angel of the Lord comes to feed him and to provide him comfort. Even still, Elijah was lamenting to God that he was the last one who had not bowed the knee because all the rest were dead. God commanded him to go out onto the mountain. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. In his display and power, in his revealing himself to Elijah, he offers comfort, telling Elijah that he is not the last. There are, in fact, 7,000 who have not bowed. When this action of passing by in Scripture is performed by God, it is God revealing himself to his faithful. When God passes by, there is no doubt about what just happened. And when it happens, God's self-revelation to his people is not an occasion of fear. Rather, it's an occasion for comfort. Second, Jesus does not wait until the disciples reach the other side to pass by. He does so on the lake by walking on the water out to his disciples in the midst of the storm. Not only is this mighty and miraculous, it is also a claim of deity. How is it a claim of deity, you might wonder? To understand this, again, we need to look back at the Old Testament and recall the words of the prophets. In Job 9.8, the writer states that God alone stretched out the heaven and trampled the waves of the sea. That's just one place. Maybe it doesn't really mean that literally. Maybe it's poetic in form. But in Job 38.16, when God is repro reproving Job directly, God himself asks the question, have you entered into the springs of the deep or walked in the recesses of the deep? And it's not just Job that uses this language. In Habakkuk 3, the prophet writes, You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. Or in Isaiah 43, Isaiah writes, Thus says the Lord, who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters. Jesus does what only God can do. He walks on water. Third is if him passing by, as he walks on water, is not enough Jesus identifies himself with his own mouth. In verse 49, the disciples are terrified that what they're seeing is a ghost. They don't recognize this as Jesus. The word here that's used is phantasm, used only here and in Matthew's account. Phantasm was, is a malevolent water spirit that come, came to wreak havoc and finish them off. That's what they were afraid of. They're seeing a ghost on the water we're going to die. But in his response to their fear, Jesus responds with three phrases. Take heart, it is I, 
do not be afraid. First, he tells them to take heart. That is, be bolstered or encouraged by what you're seeing. It's okay. What you're seeing right now is for your encouragement. Second and most significantly of the the three phrases, he says, it is I. There may be two levels of meaning in this statement. On the everyday usage, this statement is a self-identification. It's I, here I am. Jesus is reassuring them that what they're seeing is not a ghost, but they are seeing their teacher whom they know. But to best understand this, the phrase that's translated, it is I, can also be translated as I am. Jesus is identifying himself with the divine name. The name that the Jews would not speak or write, Jesus claims for himself. Thirdly, Jesus gives the same admonition that's given throughout Scripture when the divine appears. Do not be afraid. His presence is not an occasion for fear, but of comfort, for their encouragement, for their rabbi, their teacher is here. Who then is this? He is the one who reveals himself to his followers. He is present. His presence alone is a comfort in the storm. He is omnipresent. But now that Jesus has revealed who he is to the disciples, he sees them, he is present. We return to the rescue portion of the story. In verse 51, we're told that Jesus got into the boat with them and the wind ceased. In a moment, a raging storm that could have resulted in their destruction ceased. And it ceased because the one who tramples the waves of the sea was on scene. The Lord of the waves of the sea, their creator, was in control. We're told that in verse 53 that the disciples safely made it to the other side. They crossed over. A couple of things to note here. Firstly, the wind stopped. Mark does not record that Jesus commanded the wind to cease, simply that it did so in his presence. A creation in rebellion knows its master. This further confirms his divinity. Secondly, Jesus did not immediately transport them to the other side, sparing them the task that he commanded them. He did not grant them supernatural strength to overcome the storm themselves. He met them in the storm and provided a way for them to complete the task assigned. Who then is this? He is the one who saves. He is omnipotent. In verse 51, we're told that the disciples watch all of this. Jesus identifying himself, getting in the boat, calming the wind in astonishment. The Greek describes this as a thorough befuddlement, exceedingly in abundance. This communicates that they were altogether baffled. They still didn't get it. 
They knew what they had just witnessed defied everything that they could comprehend about the natural world. A man walking on water, the same man revealing his divinity, and the wind calming at his presence. On one level, we can sympathize with the disciples. Their minds had just been collectively blown. And yet, after everything that they had witnessed Jesus do in the intervening chapters, since they asked the question, who then is this? How could they have expected anything else than what they had just witnessed? In the flow of Mark, they should not have been surprised. And yet, they were. They were standing in the presence of greatness, the greatest, and they missed it. More tragically, their hearts were hardened to understanding, as we're told in verse 52. For they did not understand the miracle that they had just witnessed less than 24 hours previously, that 15 to 20,000 had just been fed with food that was only sufficient for a family. In this context, hardness of heart may refer more to an intellectual dullness than it does any type of fermented opposition to Jesus and his mission. They did not yet have eyes to see God in their midst. More telling maybe is Jesus' response. He doesn't dress them down. He doesn't rebuke them. He doesn't throw them overboard in divine anger. In his strength, he saw them safely to the other side. In his gracious kindness, what we'll see moving forward beyond this section of the text is that he continues to teach them about the kingdom of God. He continues to perform miracles in their presence. This gracious kindness that he shows culminates in a few chapters when Jesus asks Peter, but who do you say that I am? And Peter responds with, you are the Christ. So what does this mean for us? Certainly we know that Jesus is the son of the living God. This really shouldn't be a, a question for the believer. Even the characteristics of God displayed in this pericope, his omniscience, his omnipresence, and his omnipotence, should be old hat to the believer. What is for us is in the disciples' collective reaction. For the unbeliever, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. To those who do not have faith in God, encountering the living God is truly an occasion for fear. And while there is a time coming when the unbeliever will stand before the living God in judgment, in God's grace and mercy, that time is not at this moment. We must show the grace that we've been shown. The grace, the same grace that Jesus showed his disciples in that moment. We show that grace. But that grace must be spoken in the light of the truth of the gospel. Otherwise, it's not grace. The truth is that those on whom the stone that the builders, builders rejected will be crushed and utterly destroyed. But God in his mercy provided a way to reconciliation through the gospel. We must recognize that like the crowd in last week's reading, the unbeliever is like a sheep without a shepherd. 
as we discussed last week, sheep are a naturally fearful creature. They frighten easily in the face of danger. They flee, they hide, they run for cover. They look for something to protect them, but ultimately, a sheep without a shepherd is devoured. This should move us to compassion. For so once were we before the unmeasurable grace of God invaded our lives. For the believer, we should long for the comforting presence of our Redeemer. Standing in the presence of the living God is a terrifying thing. He is omniscient, He is omnipresent, and He is the omnipotent Creator and Lord of the universe. He is, as He declared Himself to be in Exodus, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generations. He is who he has proclaimed himself to be. He can be nothing other than who he is. He is gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abounding in love, unchanging, forgiving, and just. And for those of us who believe, this should be an incredible comfort. Through the blood of his son, we have been justified before him. We can rest assured that we are sealed as his and no one is able to snatch us out of the father's hand. Because when we do his will, he goes with us, he comforts us, and he is a sure foundation. Like sheep in the presence of their shepherd, whatever storm of life comes, we know that the good shepherd is in control and will protect his sheep. How can we know this? He is the one who sees us. He is the one who walks on water. He is the one that creation obeys. It is our prayer that at all times, even in the storm, we would have eyes to see him and hear his voice. Let us pray. Father, As we've read through your word this morning, we see once again your great and miraculous works. And it is easy to miss that that you also revealed yourself, that you are the good shepherd, that you are the one who sees your people, who is present with your people, and who saves your people. And Father, I pray that you would open our eyes to see you, that you would open our ears to hear your voice, that we would not miss your presence. In Jesus' name, amen.